Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Lisa Cantrell. And internally, I roll my eyes. Like, I just feel like, ugh, you know, we had just lived through the Kavanaugh hearings. I felt like every problem in the world was like straight white men who were oblivious, entitled. And this kid looked like kind of a cross between a frat boy and like a beach bum, like never had a hard day in his life. That and more, but first, You know, we like to feature the voices of people on risk that you might not hear elsewhere. People with disabilities, people who have been unhoused or who have struggled with poverty or been incarcerated, immigrants, indigenous folks, people of color, of course. And remember, you can encourage someone that you know to pitch us. Anyone can do it. Everything you need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Men I Trust, behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode 
Feeling Feelings. Two stories about men working at accessing and processing their emotions. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Lisa Cantrell, the founder of Capital Storytelling in Sacramento. But before that, a story by Aditya Maya, a comedian, filmmaker, and writer in New York. Just to let you know, the subject of suicide plays a big role in this story. And here's Aditya now with a story we call Speaking into the Silence. The first funeral I ever attended was my grandfather's. He was 83, and a lifetime of hard drinking and chain smoking had finally caught up to him. I was 18 at the time, and I had just joyously begun my own journey of ruining my body with over-the-counter drugs. And there was a moment where I was standing there in the funeral home, surrounded by all these dour adults, sad and seemingly shocked that this 80-year-old man who treated his body like an ashtray at a frat house was somehow no longer with us. And I couldn't help feeling like all of it was kind of ridiculous. So I turned to my younger brother, Keshav, who's standing next to me, and shares a similar inability to take things seriously. And I said, hey, who died? And he laughed. But then he kind of looked at me with this expression that could almost be considered genuine, and he said, you know, you don't have to say anything, right? You can just feel it. And he was right. But I've never been good at that kind of thing. Um, it's not that I don't have feelings. I do. It's just that I don't really get overwhelmed by them and that I'm certainly not good at talking about them. I think I'm just really focused on moving forward, on resilience, and not letting things get in the way of that. When I was a kid once, we went to India to visit family, and I had a truly incredible time hanging out with my cousins there. It was two weeks of nonstop fun, and it was something I knew I would remember when I write my memoirs or a particularly boring folk song on my deathbed. When it came time to leave, everyone was a little emotional, and my cousins started to cry. I didn't, and then they got mad at me for not crying because they said that it showed that I didn't care about them, which I didn't understand at all because they knew this was coming and that we were only there for two weeks. I almost wanted to tell them to gain some composure because it was kind of embarrassing me. I was like, guys, we are 10 years old. Can we please start acting like adults? Now, this type of behavior tends to throw people, but not my brother. He gets it which wasn't always the case initially. We had a pretty conventionally combative big brother, little brother relationship. Uh, I was mad that someone new had come to take away my parents' affection, and he was just annoyed that uh, there was an older kid there oddly mad at him for seemingly no reason. But then something happened when I moved out for college and he went to high school. Uh, maybe we were just at the right age or the distance caused us to miss each other, but we actually started to become friends. We realized how similar we were. We started sharing music and movie recommendations. I gave him advice on how to get through high school, like doing tests and talking to girls, uh, how to hide being drunk, mostly the being drunk thing. A few years after that first funeral, I graduate college into the middle of the worst pandemic in a century, and I am paralyzingly out of work. It's November 1st, 2020, and a combination of anxiety over the upcoming election and my increasingly gainful unemployment is creating a level of stress that I don't think can be topped. And then, around 3 p.m., my phone rings. It's my mom. And I can tell it's serious because her voice is a tiny bit tighter than usual. She says, have you heard from your brother recently? I go, um, no, what's, what's wrong? And she tells me he sent some worrying messages to his friends. She doesn't tell me what these messages are, but they were bad enough that his friends got in contact with her and my dad, and they're on their way now to his dorm room just to check up on him. So I say, okay, and let her go. A couple hours go by, and I get another call. Uh, this one is less coherent. It's from my dad. They're at the hospital, but he's kind of blubbering. He can barely speak, so I let him go. 
Finally, around 9 p.m., my uncle calls me, and I get the whole story. My brother had gotten drunk alone in his already COVID-depleted dorm room. He'd sent a single cry for help to his friends, and then when none came, climbed to the top of a five-story parking garage, and he let go. Four years after my grandpa died, I'm now going to my second ever funeral. And this time, my brother won't be there as counsel because he's the one in the casket. The day after he dies, I do two things. Um, I pack for my trip back home, and I field messages from concerned friends and family. And the whole time, I'm anxious. Not sad or empty or even angry, but I'm anxious because there's this dread just at the bottom of my stomach that I'm gonna have to interact with people who are beyond upset, and that isn't something I'm good at. And my prediction comes true. Throughout the day, I'm bombarded with uh, condolence phone calls and texts and emails, some Snapchats, which seems inappropriate, but all of them go through the same basic structure. They wanted to check in that I was doing okay, and I tell them that I am, I say, yeah, I'm good. And then they start to break down, and I have to console them and tell them that it's okay for them to cry because my brother died. It's a strange thing to get bored of. This funeral is a few days later, and that is even stranger. It's held in this all-white sterile room with a singular potted plant to the side, and in the center, an open casket holding the deformed gray husk that was once the kid I gave piggyback rides to. Because of COVID restrictions, the funeral home has capped us at just nine people inside. So for the sake of those who weren't able to make it, the entire event is being live streamed over Zoom. And as is the case with so many Zooms we were subject to in the early days of the pandemic, much of this really could have been an email. First of all, everyone who spoke had to do it into my uncle's battered iPhone 7 because the microphone on the computer wasn't working. And I just sat there completely baffled, not just because of the always ridiculous sight of watching people in their 50s attempt to use technology, but because of what it was that they were saying specifically. Every eulogy followed the same structure. Uh, they started by talking about how truly unique my brother was, and then they went on to list all of his magnificently unique qualities, like how he enjoyed spending time with friends, or watching TV, or how much he loved music. Loved music. <laughs> I was amazed no one chose to mention his love of metabolizing food into energy or blinking at regular intervals. But did you know him any better? Says a voice at the back of my head. You didn't know he was depressed. The last conversation you had with him was about the best Quiznos sandwich. You have no right to say anything either. Why am I here? Why are any of us here? What are we doing? This is all ridiculous. And now it's my turn to speak. So I get up there and I do the only thing that I think is appropriate in that time which is make a horribly tasteless joke. I said, we'll be holding a raffle for his belongings, so if anyone's in the market for a very used guitar, please let me know. It's not my best work. But I saw my mom smile, and that was nice, even if it did feel like the person who would have most enjoyed my joke was no longer there to hear it. Back home, I'm trying my best to move forward, to clean myself of the discomfort of the past few days. And so I go through my phone and my computer and I delete everything that reminds me of my brother, his contact, his text messages, any pictures I may have had of him. I tell myself that I'm doing this because I don't want something to look at that'll just reinforce my sadness. But I think it's maybe to stop myself from even remembering that I'm allowed to be sad at all. I can't get rid of everything though, because some people weren't able to tune into the Zoom, it's been decided that the recording will be edited and sent out to everyone. And guess who went to film school and thus has the responsibility of making that edit? I should also say at this point that multiple people did check in and make sure that I was okay to make the funeral movie, and that also I was okay in general, and every time I'd say the same thing. I'd say, yeah, I'm good. And I think I actually thought I was. At least in terms of appearances, I seem to be doing great compared to everyone else. Composure is very important to me. And I think I've begun to believe that if I was presenting as completely fine, then that meant that I actually was. Going through the footage is as wrenching as it is mind-numbing, so I decide to listen to some music, which was something I hadn't really been in the mood for in the past few days. 
my brother and I shared a Spotify, and uh, I think I just wanted to avoid having to look at anything that reminded me of him. But I log in now, and I noticed that there was a song that had been played about a week earlier that I don't remember listening to. It's uh, Ode to the Mets by The Strokes. The Strokes were the first band that I recommended to my brother that he really got into. And Ode to the Mets is one of their best later era songs. It's an anthem for a perennially losing team. It's the closing track on that album. And also, it seems, My Brother's Life. This revelation is a tiny bit much, so I decide to leave my increasingly stuffy apartment and I go for a walk to the park nearby. I sit down and I inhale the sweet scent of garbage and notice the wind cutting right through my already thin hoodie and I realize this is not the relaxing outing that I wanted it to be. And then I spot Katie. Katie lived in my building a few floors below me. We had seen each other a few times, uh, shared a few brief interactions, talking about how we both recently graduated college, commiserating about how great it was we were able to afford a place in the Lower East Side because COVID had cratered rent prices, and then remembered to be solemn because COVID was definitely, for sure, indeed, a bad thing. She wasn't a stranger, and now here she was, playing with a toy dinosaur with a young kid, who I later learned was someone she babysat. She saw me and smiled and waved, inviting me over. And I want to go over and say hi, but for some reason I don't because, wow, she's a pretty smile. And oh my God, is that a John Macari book she's reading? And oh my God, her hair looks nice. And I take a breath. Even in the moment, I'm aware of how stupid this is. I didn't get flustered at my brother's funeral, but now I am because a girl is pretty. So I go up and say hi, and we have a conversation. And then we have another and another, and then soon enough, we're making the two-story trek to each other's apartments pretty regularly. And before I know it, there's something else in my life that I'm thinking about, something that actually makes me feel happy. She was everything I needed in the moment. Sweet, funny, dryly sarcastic, somehow as much of a fan of both post-punk bands and white wines as I was. And perhaps most importantly, she was someone who knew absolutely nothing of what I was going through. I knew I should have told her, especially once we officially started dating. The longer we were together and I didn't say anything, the more it felt like I was withholding this piece of information from her that was, yes, deeply personal, but also felt necessary to share with my partner. But she was the one person I had in my life where there wasn't a dark undercurrent to every interaction. There wasn't this creeping monster around every conversational corner just waiting to rear its head. And I didn't want to lose that. Besides, maybe I was just watching too much Mad Men, but isn't life about finding a woman you never want to worry by being yourself in front of? I thought so at the time, anyways. It was sometime in February when she asked me to come down to her apartment, and I knew something was wrong from the minute she opened the door. She was nervous, not an expression I saw often on her. We sat on her pale green couch uh, that she had traded an old bottle of Chardonnay for, she told me she'd been talking to a mutual friend of ours who had let it slip about my brother, assuming that she already knew. And she wasn't mad that I hadn't told her. She wanted me to know that. But then she took my hand in hers and told me she wasn't sure if either of us were ready for what this relationship was becoming and that we'd been moving really quickly. And then she started to tear up. I don't. Out of the corner of my eye, I see our building super, this freakishly strong woman in her 60s, dragging out the trash to the curb. It seemed like an apt metaphor for what was happening on the inside. And so there I was, just a few months after the funeral, without a brother, without a girlfriend, and without any way to talk about it. Or so I thought. I think I always assumed that everything needed to have a point, that if you were to move forward in life, you needed to do it with purpose and conviction, and that dwelling in your feelings and venting about nothing was ultimately useless and unproductive. That summer, I'm hanging out with a few friends in their apartment. Their AC is broken, and so we're using that as an excuse to polish off a 24-pack of the cheapest hard seltzer we could find. Um, we're listening to just a random assortment of songs on a Bluetooth speaker. It's constantly reminding us that it's on low battery and about to die. And then Ode to the Mets comes on. 
And I want to say something, but I don't, because what is there to say that's valuable, or at the very least, won't make everyone in the room incredibly uncomfortable? So I say nothing. And then I hear the ending of the song, and I actually listen to the lyrics for the first time. Things die in silence, and moving forward doesn't always mean forgetting about the past. And I think I'm just beginning to understand that. So I brought it up. I talked to my friends about how I loved this song, but it made me sad because of how I'll always remember my brother and his final moments whenever it plays. And my prediction was completely correct. It was unbelievably awkward. I can't imagine a more uncomfortable situation. But we pushed through it, and ultimately, I'm so, so glad that I talked about it. About a year after that, uh, I'm in a bar in the Lower East Side. Um, I've long since moved out of that apartment that had been the setting for so many life-altering events, but I'm back in the neighborhood for the night. Behind me, I hear a familiar voice. It's Katie, who amazingly also happens to be in this bar tonight, and she asks how I'm doing. And so I say the only words I know how to, the words that I've had so much practice saying, but for the first time, start to actually sound true. Hey, I'm good. This is The Strokes Behind Me Now, and we just heard from Aditya Maya, who you can find on Instagram at aditya.obadiah. And I'll tell you, that story got me thinking about something. In 2019, in the episode called Renewal, Nikki Smith shared one of the most devastating and brutally honest and somehow inspiring stories about loss that we've ever featured on the show about losing her brother when he drank himself to death. Well, Nikki reached out to us recently to express that that story, sharing that story was just one step along the way in her journey of grieving and growing. In fact, she is now what is commonly referred to as a death doula, someone who offers emotional and moral support to folks who are dealing with loss. Remarkable vocation there. And since both of our stories on today's episode feature the theme of grieving, I thought it would be interesting to send the recordings of these two stories to Nikki to see if she might have any thoughts about them she might like to share. And so here's some of what Nikki said about Aditya's story. So my name is Nikki Smith, and I am a death doula in Columbus, Ohio. I provide non-medical holistic support, guidance, comfort for the dying and their loved ones. So overall, I just want to make sure people are leaving this world feeling ready and comforted. 
I really, really liked Aditya's story, and I felt a lot of myself in this as well. I lost my brother in 2015 rather suddenly, and our stories are very different, our griefs are very different, but I had kind of a similar reaction in that I use humor to deflect a lot of my grief. But the biggest thing that stuck out with me with his story was his feeling like it's not okay to grieve that other people's griefs are more important or being there for other people. He specifically mentioned people would come up and ask if he was okay. He's like, oh, I'm fine. And then they would break down and he would have to comfort them. And when Aditya did not open up right away to his girlfriend about the loss of his brother and the grief he was suffering, he specifically mentioned a couple times about not wanting to be a burden or not wanting to be a bother. And I feel a lot of a lot of people have that feeling when it comes to grief. Like, well, yeah, this is something I'm going through. I don't have to put it on anybody else because that's not their problem, it's mine. And, and I'm never gonna tell anybody what the right way or wrong way is to cope with your grief, but sharing it is a beautiful way to process it. But grief is personal and it's hard for anybody to open up about it. I didn't process my own brother's death for probably four or five years. It took me a lot of time. I was helping keep my family together. I was dealing with everybody else's issues and all the nitty gritty and just avoiding it. And I didn't even come to grips with it for a few years at that point. It's so nice to hear these different perspectives about grief. You know, my father was diagnosed with stage four cancer and we were told to prepare for his imminent death a whole 15 years before he died. He beat the cancer, but then there were the strokes and the heart attacks and many, many more near-death scares over the years. So we just kept thinking his death might be imminent and somehow I had this intrusive thought that I could only ever tell my therapist about. It would just pop up for me over and over for all 15 of those years. And it was, oh my God, what if I'm not emotional enough when he dies? What if I don't cry at his funeral? I think that might have been this habitual worry thought pattern that I have where I just don't measure up to other people. You know, this general anxiety that everyone's normal, but somehow I fall short. Then my dad died, and <laughs> of course I cried plenty, including right here on the podcast, on this episode called Bereavement, where I gave a bit of a eulogy of sorts, and that was that meant so much to me to be able to share on the show with everyone. But then recently I was talking to my therapist again and I said, what if I haven't processed my dad's death enough so far? What if I've fallen short of how normal people grieve? And I realized that might be a similar thing happening all over again. You know, that, that whole, oh my God, just worrying about me not measuring up. And in listening to Aditya's story and then Nikki's reaction, I started to think, maybe there's still some more to process, sure. And maybe that's okay. Maybe dad would prefer that I not worry so much either way. I'll tell you, we have grown so fascinated by the conversations that risk stories inspire, including among the storytellers themselves reviewing their stories years later. And you can hear more of Nikki's thoughts about the stories on today's episode over at patreon.com slash risk. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. 
That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We're back. Folks, we got the loveliest email from a Risk listener who donated to help keep Risk running. She preferred to remain anonymous, but I asked if I could read what she wrote. She said, Hi, Kevin. Something huge happened in my life, and your show had a ginormous positive impact on it. It's March of this year, and I'm dating this man named Will. He's someone I love dearly and one of my closest friends, but I'm unsure if I have romantic feelings for him. For weeks, I want to call him and tell him that I love our relationship, our sexual chemistry, our adventures around the country, our friendship, and I don't want any of that to change. And also that I don't have romantic feelings for him. For months, I'm terrified of having this conversation. I do not want to lose him as a friend. I'm listening to an episode of Risk, and you say, folks, today's the day, take a risk. And I say, fuck it. Today's the day. Kevin just said it was. And so I call him. I'm still terrified, but it's somehow easier than I expected. Will sounds relieved, and he says he feels the same way. We end the call saying we'll be forever friends, we'll keep things the way they are, and that we care so, so much for each other. Well, it's now mid-June, and his sister calls me to tell me that Will has died in a kayaking accident. He was just about to turn 26. I'm shattered. I will be for the rest of my life. But I am so, so, so grateful that we had that conversation and that we were on the same page about our feelings for each other. If I hadn't taken that risk to call him, and if he had died before we were able to talk, this grief would be exponentially harder. So thank you, thank you, thank you for telling us to take risks. That moment Will and I had was facilitated by you, and I'm forever grateful. Well, thank you so much for that beautiful email. I can't express how much it means to all of us here on the staff to hear such heartfelt sharing from our listeners. And to everyone else, I should let you know that our friend here, she made a one-time donation at paypal.me slash risk show. Another listener just became a Patreon member. That's Lisa Nelson. We're so grateful. 
because we really do need the support. And you too can become a member of our Patreon community. There's so much bonus content over there at patreon.com slash risk. Now, with this major theme we're exploring in this episode about taking risks in order to make the most of this life while you still have it. (laughs) We're going to hear from Lisa Cantrell, the founder of Capital Storytelling. You know Capital Storytelling already because we've featured Lisa before. We've featured various Capital Storytelling stories and recordings before on the show. They're remarkable. They teach storytelling and produce shows And Lisa is the mastermind that founded it all. And here she is now with a story that touches on the experience of teaching storytelling and the way that teaching is such a great way to learn. Here's Lisa Cantrell now with a story we call Remember Brian. So it is springtime, I'm in Virginia, I'm sitting on my front porch, and the mail arrives, and in the stack of letters there's this big manila envelope, and it's from my friend Raven, and I already know what it is, so I open it up, and inside there is uh, like one of those coloring books for adults, and so I I pull it out and I'm flipping through it, and and stuck inside the pages uh, are these big stickers. And as I'm just sitting there holding this, I feel like my throat start to tighten up and and things start to get blurry. And and I just think about how big the universe is and how small we are and how short our lives are. And like, how do we create meaning? A few years before this, I was living out in Sacramento and I was teaching a storytelling class. Uh, And so the first night of this class, all the students are arriving and they're kind of sitting down in their seats and in walks this conventionally attractive man. Okay, so he is six foot tall. He's white. He is very tan though with dimples. His hair is like that kind of sun-kissed blonde, like messed up look. He's very muscular. And he just kind of comes in and like slouches down in the desk and internally I roll my eyes like (laughs) I just feel like ugh, I know this vibe I know this energy I'm not interested like Trump was elected president you know we had just lived through the Kavanaugh hearings I felt like every problem in the world was like straight white men who were oblivious entitled just took up too much space in the room and this kid looked like kind of a cross between a frat boy and like a beach bum, like never had a hard day in his life. And I was like, not interested. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that like in the class, like in that first class, I kind of ignored him and I was focusing on other students. And uh, I find out his name is Brian. And at the end of this class, at the end of the first day, I give them all their assignment, which is go home, come up with a story, come back next week. We're all gonna stand up one by one and share our stories. Great, they all come back the following week and they are getting up and sharing their stories. One kid gets up, he shares this really beautiful story about his grandmother and then an older gentleman stands up, he shares a story about meeting his childhood baseball hero in the parking lot of a grocery store. And then it's Brian's turn and I'm just like bracing myself like, okay, what is he gonna share? Like probably some story about like how he did a bunch of cocaine, got really drunk, found himself on a flight to Cancun. Like that's what I'm expecting. So as he starts to stand up, before he even gets to his feet, he stops and he's like, I am so nervous. Can I sit down and tell my story? And I, I, I'm i like taken aback and I'm like, oh, um, I just kind of react like the, the teacher in me kicks in and I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like you can tell your story sitting down, that's totally fine. And I kind of felt my heart soften. Like I saw him almost like this little boy, like this kid, like a third grader at a spelling bee, like, feeling exposed and scared 
And so he he tells a story sitting down and he's like looking at the ground as he shares and he's actually a pretty good storyteller and he talks about how he was working cutting trees in this manual labor job and and I think huh like I did not peg him as a blue collar worker like interesting and I felt my heart kind of open a little towards Brian. And at the end of this class, so, uh, you know, we got to know each other a little more as a group. And at the end of this class, everyone's kind of leaving and they're saying goodbyes. And Brian is kind of lingering at the back. And as I head out the door, he says, hey, um, I actually had a different story I wanted to tell in this class. And I just like chickened out. I don't know how to tell it. Would you help me? And, you know, teaching is like my calling. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. I said, look, Brian, this class is over, but why don't you come over to my apartment next week? We'll work on your story. So he shows up at my apartment the next week. We cram into uh, my little kitchen nook, like we're sitting on either side of this little wooden Ikea table. Dusk is setting. And so I just tell him like, okay, tell me the story. And he's kind of looking off into the distance like he's a little bit reluctant, but he leans in and, and he just starts and he says, I grew up in a really dysfunctional home. My dad and I fought constantly. And one day when I was a teenager, I got home and my dad had packed a duffel bag for me. He sat it outside the door. He locked the door. I didn't have a key. And that's how he kicked me out. And he said, you know, that night I actually slept on a bench in front of a tennis court. Like I had nowhere to go. And I was homeless for a little bit. And I ended up taking that tree cutting job because they offered a place to stay and meals. And that's what I needed. And then he starts to tell me just how things had unraveled over the next few years of his life and how he would find himself in relationships that he just, he could not hold on to. Like he would uh, be in a relationship with a girl, be in love, just totally ruin it because of his habits. He said, I would just, I would be angry and bitter and mean. And one day I kind of zoomed out and I saw the bigness of my life and like how I was going to continually lose things over and over and over if I didn't change. And then he told me, you know, I heard this podcast from a neuroscientist and he kind of like, you know, he gets a smile on his face and he says, I heard this this podcast and this neuroscientist talked about how our, our neuropathways are like are like ruts, you know, it's like trudging a path through snow. So if you leave your house and you go out to your mailbox and it's snowing, you start to wear in this path in the snow. And and every day you go out to your mailbox, you keep kind of wearing in that path and the snow keeps falling higher until one day you open the door and like the snow is like up to your ears, but you still have this path. But the thing is, you only have that path and you're trapped and you can't take any other route and you couldn't even see the other options if you wanted to at this point. And he said, that's how I feel. I feel like I'm just, I'm trapped on this rut and I don't know how to get off of this path. And so I'm just looking for ways to like bounce myself off of this path. I don't want to end up bitter and angry and lonely. So this past year, I've been like doing everything I could just to bounce myself off. And he said he'd like sign up for cooking classes. He wanted to take a pottery class, improv. He'd signed up for the storytelling class, like everything in hopes of bouncing himself off this path and onto a different path. And as I watched him across the table, internally, I just think, I am a fucking judgy bitch. Like, this is not who I thought he was at all. Like, here is a person who was not, you know, entitled. Like, he is someone who had suffered. He had caused a lot of suffering, but he wanted to do better. He wanted to be different in the world. And I said, Brian, this is this is a really uh, important story, I think. You know, we have a, a storytelling show that's going to happen in a couple of weeks. Would you want to get on stage and share your story? And I could see, like, you know... <laughs> He was like, uh, but he was trying to say yes to everything. So he was like, yes. <laughs> so um, we we started to rehearse his story and to edit it and to work on it. And the night of this event came, he got up on stage and he fucking killed it. Like the audience loved him. You could just see them all leaning in with him. He nailed it. We kept in touch after that event, you know, we would text and we would email every once in a while and we would even meet up sometimes. And about six months after that event, 
uh, I was in my living room and I got a text from him and he was an Android user. So <laughs> his, his text would come up in like green bubbles and there was like this really long green bubble text from him. And he said, you know, telling my story that changed my life. Just telling that story for myself, it changed how I saw those events in my life. It changed how I saw myself. It changed how I understood the world. But then sharing my story on stage, that changed everything too because I met people that, at that event and they introduced me to other people and then to other people. And all of a sudden I'm finding myself in this whole new group of friends with healthy relationships and I'm doing things I hadn't ever done before. And like, oh my God, I bounced myself off of that old path and I'm like, on the path that I want to be on. I'm like closer to the life that I want to live. And I felt so proud, right? Like, I mean, as a teacher, that's what you want to hear. You want to hear your students say like, you changed my life. And what I didn't tell Brian uh, was that he had changed me. And like, I know that's so cliche, like who is the teacher? You know, who is the student? But it was true, like he had changed me. Hearing his story, it changed how I felt about him. It changed how I treated him. But even more than that, it changed how I treated everyone. <laughs> like, I would go to the grocery store and some woman would cut in front of me in line and I would think, oh, this bitch. And then I'd stop and I'd be like, I don't know this woman. I don't know her history. I don't know what suffering she may have endured. I don't know her stories. Remember, remember Brian, <laughs> be kind. Uh, so years passed, I eventually moved to Virginia, and uh, one day I'm sitting on my bed, and I'm scrolling through Facebook, and, uh, and a picture of Brian pops up one day, and I'm like, oh, and he looked really happy in this picture. He was sitting on this mountaintop, and he had his arms resting on his knees, and he had his dirt bike in the background, and it made me, like, happy to see this. And then I, I scrolled a little more, and at the bottom of this picture, it said, in loving memory of Brian October 2021. And that is how I found out that Brian had passed away. You know, you hear people say like, my heart stopped or like I couldn't breathe, but like, that is really the best description. Like, I could not take in this information. <laughs> he was in his thirties. It was, it was a shock to everyone. For weeks after that, I, I fell into like this grief and like, I think just an existential crisis. Like I would go on these walks out in, on the road in front of our house. We lived out in the country and, and my brain would just kind of be on loop. Like Brian died, Brian died. Like what is the point of anything? Like here was this person who had suffered and he tried so hard to like get on a different path in life and he'd done it only to die. And I just felt like the, the emptiness of our lives and how short our lives are and like how pointless everything felt, like how pointless everything I'm doing felt. They started to plan a celebration of life for Brian and it, it was to be in Sacramento. And I wanted to go, I wanted to tell his family like what he had meant to me and how he had um, really changed me, you know? And I couldn't make it work with my schedule. I couldn't get a flight. And so my friend Raven, he said, hey, listen, I'm going to be in Sacramento. I'll go for you. And so the day of the, the memorial comes and Raven is there and he's texting me and he's sending me pictures. And he says, they're handing out these coloring books. His friend was an artist and she made this coloring book and dedicated it to him. Do you want one? And I said, yes, please. And then he texts again and he says, oh, they made these stickers with his name. Do you want one? And I said, yes, please send me one. So on that day and in, in the spring, I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm holding that coloring book and those stickers with Brian's name. And I'm just, I'm thinking about how small our lives are, right? Like the universe is so big and we're just here and then we're gone and things can feel so meaningless, right? Like, how do we have meaning in our lives? And for me, I feel like the only meaning that I can create is through the stories that I tell myself about my own life and about others' lives. And the way that, for me, Brian's life has meaning 
is taking the, the thing that he has taught me forward, and that's this. You don't know what someone has lived. You don't know their suffering. You don't know their story until you sit with them. So be kind. And so when I see that woman in the, in the grocery line that cuts me off, and I have that split-second judgment, I think, be kind. Remember Brian. This is Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down behind me now. I love that as a name for a band. Oh, and uh, Joanna Newsom is doing backup vocals there. And we just heard from Lisa Cantrell, who you can find on Instagram at Capital Storytelling. Once again, we asked our friend Nikki Smith who in 2019 told one of the most well-known stories on risk about grieving the loss of someone and who is now a death doula helping others to go through all of that. We asked Nikki how she felt uh, when she first heard Lisa's story about Brian. So here's some of what that sounded like. So Lisa's story really kind of struck me about how our first significant loss or our first exposure to a grief or even a traumatic loss, it kind of shapes how we grieve. And what was very interesting to me is this was somebody in her life that she only met for a short period of time and she wasn't super close with. They shared a bond over storytelling and they absolutely shared some intimate space together, but it wasn't, you know, a super close friend or a relative, but his death really impacted her and it really shaped her grief. And a lot of people when they experience their first real grief, it kind of shapes their view of the world too. A lot of people that do my line of work as a death doula or grief professional, most of us are here because we've had some type of significant or tragic loss in our background. And when we learned how to cope with it and how to get through it, it was so impactful that we want to help other people. And a big part of my job too is just letting people know whatever you're going to feel is totally normal and perfectly okay. If I were to give a piece of advice to somebody experiencing their first significant loss, don't hold it in. Don't be afraid to share that grief with others around you, but take your time with it. Hold that grief. Don't avoid it. Look it dead on in the eye. If you need to take a break from it, if you need to take a day where you're not thinking about it, do it. Like we need to, you know, have that rest sometimes, but really hold that space in your heart for that grief. See where it rolls around in your heart. Like, where does it hit you most? And what does it make you see in others around you? Don't just brush it off or assume you know how you have to cope with it. You cope with it however is best for you. Oh, I have to say I'm so grateful 
to Nikki Smith for sharing her thoughts and feelings about today's stories with us. You can find Nikki at NikkiTheDeathDoula.com. And remember, there's more of Nikki's reflections over on Patreon.com slash risk. Well, folks, I have to say that since I started recording the hosting of this episode... Hundreds of people, maybe even more by now, have been killed this early October in Israel and Gaza. So much tragedy, such a cycle of violence, begetting violence, begetting violence, and so on. I know we have Muslim and Arab and Palestinian and Jewish and Israeli listeners who are currently grieving or dealing with the terrorized feelings by it all. The thing is, compassion for all is so important, so crucial. You know, no matter what convictions you might have about the political powers orchestrating all of this I mean I have plenty of strong opinions about all that but it's just so heartbreaking to see the amount of propaganda out there stoking people to root for civilians for other people to be harmed on either side of this ongoing tragedy I just pray that we can all begin to wake, wake up from hatred and heal some of this, heal humanity as much as we can in our lifetimes. And as we go into the end of the year, folks, the next Risk live shows are the very day this episode will be released, October 17th in L.A., then November 16th in New York, and then again on November 21st in L.A. Our live shows have been great this year, and nothing quite compares to seeing a Risk Live show live. <laughs> you can always find all the info at risk show.com slash live and if you're a fan of my old sketch comedy troupe the state go to the dash state.com to find out if our tour this fall is coming to your town again that's the dash state.com we'll be right back Folks, do you have a bad habit you'd love to break? Like vaping, overeating, or here's one of mine, doom scrolling. So not good for me. But listen, Atomic Griffin coaching can help. Do you have a good habit you'd love to make? Like exercising, reading, or meditating? Atomic Griffin coaching can help. Adam Griffin is a life coach with Atomic Griffin, and he'd love to talk with you about how he can help. Now listen, Adam is a very good friend of mine. We went to college together, and then he resurfaced in my life in 2010 when he pitched the story Fantasy Farm, which is one of the all-time classics on the best of risk number one. I've watched this journey he's taken of becoming a life coach, and it has been so inspirational to see someone really find their calling and just loving it, especially when that calling is helping people. And full disclosure, Adam is coaching me and JC Cassis, the business director of Risk right now. We've both been so impressed. We've both been doing better. I've already been personally recommending Adam's coaching to other friends. And all you have to do is set up a free discovery session. And he has not one, but two risk bonuses to offer you. 
Mention the show when you set up your free discovery session by using the offer code RISK, that's R-I-S-K, and you'll not only get a free Ask the Coach question, you'll also get 10% off your first coaching package. Why wait? To make your life better, simply go to atomic-griffin.com to set up your free discovery session with Adam. That's A-T-O-M-I-C-G-R-Y-P-H-O-N.com. And that discovery session is free. Atomic Griffin Coaching can help. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We're back. Next week on the podcast, Gail Thomas deals with strife in her family when differences around politics flare up. But that's next week. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.